Good morning, and welcome once again to Christ the King. My name's Andres. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King, and thank you, Daniel and team, for leading us in worship. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 3. It can be found on page 448 in your black Bibles. Hear God's word to you this morning. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The word of the Lord. One of our favorite things to do as a Zelaya family, um, all really all year, uh, happens in the fall, and that is to go to the Renaissance Festival. I'm not sure how many of you have gotten a chance to go, but um, if you do go, uh, make sure it's on a kid-friendly weekend. Uh, but really, it, it's, a, it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it happens around October. It's in Northwest Houston. And what makes it so fun is that everybody dresses up and you're transported to Renaissance times. Everybody's greeting you in Old English. There are towers, there's incredible food. You can actually go to all these different sections around the festival. In each section, it's a different country internationally, and so you get to try all these international foods. There's rides and theater shows, and my kids just love it. And this last time that we, uh, that we went, we bought Tim, who's our eight-year-old, a sword that he had seen that he, that he really wanted. And he would go around the park saying, I'm a knight. And he, you know, he's going all around and he's fighting, he's fighting dragons, right? He says, I'm a knight and I'm going to fight dragons. Dragons, the most ancient of villains who terrorize human beings until someone is strong enough, brave enough to grab a sword and destroy the dragon. Now, there's obviously a part of us that left all of these uh, imaginary stories and characters behind in our childhood, like knights and dragons and fairies. But as we enter adulthood, we begin to realize that dragons actually still exist. But they exist in very different ways and we imagined them when we were children. These dragons go by different names, like depression, anxiety, crime, verbal or emotional abuse from a loved one, a rebellious child, dependency on alcohol or drugs or coworkers or family members who speak wrong against us. But unlike our childhood dragons, we realize that these ones causes real suffering and pain. What are we supposed to do with them? And how are we supposed to fight them? 
where our psalm this morning has something to say about the very real dragons that we encounter in our very real world. We're in this sermon series uh, going through the psalms uh, this summer, and we arrive to Psalm chapter 3, which commentators will tell you is the first real psalm, meaning it's the first real prayer. And it comes about because of some very difficult um, circumstances that the author is going through, is experiencing. Now the Bible in general, and the Psalms in particular, know of no other world detached from this one. A world that is filled with many dragons, violence and greed, theft and murder, adultery, drugs, abuse, toxic family members, heartaches and regrets. The list could go on, but you get the point. And the Psalms don't just provide us with pat religious answers to these problems. It does provide us with theological language to express our problems, but in so many ways, it is unlike the God language, the angel talk that so many of us are used to expressing or talking. The Psalms are not flowery language. This is the real world that we live in. And so we must have real, authentic, vulnerable, and honest language that we can express and talk about our very real struggles. That's precisely what this Psalm gives us. So we'll look at the very real and oftentimes dark world that the author presents to us in three sections. First, what he sees. Second, what he believes. And third, what he prays for. What he sees, what he believes, and what he prays for. So let's look at God's word together. First, what he sees. Listen to how the psalm begins again. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now most, if not all of your Bibles, include this superscript that I just read. Um, That's not part of the original prayer, right? David did not pray that sentence, but throughout history, Jewish and Christian readers have considered this superscript part of the original inspired scripture, meaning they're really important and we should pay attention to them. Now, what is this superscript telling us? Well, we have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 15, where we learn that King David has ascended the throne and he's well established. His kingdom has grown and it's extended itself across vast lands. He has conquered all of Israel's enemies and as a result, Israel has become a regional superpower. In other words, things are going really, really well for David until they begin to unravel. One of the first episodes is the well-known story of David and Bathsheba. I won't rehearse that here except to remind you that David was involved in murder and adultery and theft and lies, breaking four out of the Ten Commandments in one single episode. Then his own son, Absalom, the one that's mentioned here in the superscript, betrays his father, King David. Absalom is is very popular. He begins to gather adoring fans around him, including generals and advisors, and he begins to institute a coup. 
And the rebellion is so strong that King David is forced to flee the capital, his own home, in the cover of night. We read that on the way out of the city, he covers his head as a sign of mourning and he walks out barefoot. Now seeing him in this vulnerable position, his enemies, David's enemies begin to come out of the woodwork and anyone who had anything against David begins to cast curses on him. And it's in the midst of all of this distress and this fear and this anxiety that David writes this prayer. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's own prayer begins like many of our own, out of desperate need. We seek help, we seek answers. Now we learn three things about David's enemies here. First, we learn that they are numerous. Uh, Three times in these first two verses, David uses the term many to describe his enemies. Later in verse six, he'll say that there are tens of thousands of them. Of course, he's using hyperbolic language, but you kind of get this image and you get the idea. Not uh, really proud to say this, but the Zeliah household... um, has, for whatever reason, um, this reoccurring issue with gnats. You know what gnats are? Fruit flies, right? Uh, and, 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 and we keep clean, so, you know, don't, don't worry. But there's these reoccurring things that come up over and over and over again in our kitchen. And, you know, we've tried throwing away the fruit and, you know, uh, food and leftovers and all of that. Now, you you might say, okay, gnats, what's the big deal, right? Well, you know, if it was one of them, right, yeah, they're tiny. We could deal with that. But the problem is whenever there's one gnat, there's two. And wherever there's two, there's five. And wherever there's five, there's ten. We could deal with one gnat because it's one problem. It makes it much more difficult when there are multiples of them. See, you and I could deal with one person maybe speaking against us, attacking us, gossiping or spreading rumors. But what if it was 10? What if it was 100? What if it was 1,000 people attacking you? That's what David is experiencing here. But beyond that, second, it says that his enemies are aggressive. It's not just that there are many of them, it's how they're attacking. They're not just attacking David as king, right? His policies, his decisions. They're attacking the very core of his existence. Many are saying of my soul. They're attacking the deepest part of who he is as a human. So they're numerous, they're aggressive, but number three, and this is perhaps the most difficult thing of them all, they are mocking. Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. What his enemies who are taunting him are saying is, God will not save him. Now why would they say such a thing? 
Well, if you think about it, David had brought a lot of these problems on himself, hadn't he? The seeds for his family's dysfunction had come about because of his own failure to act as a leader in his home. Absalom had already demonstrated years ago the kind of person that he was. He had murdered his own brother, King David's other son. And rather than stepping up and disciplining or punishing his son, David fails to act, which emboldens Absalom to then step up and take over his father's throne. And we already know about this whole episode that's happening on the heels of David and Bathsheba. And so his enemies are looking at all of this and they're saying, you deserve this, David. God is punishing you, David. See, you reap what you sow, David. Now, one thing I want you to notice from this is the assumption that enemies are reoccurring company. Uh, Enemies are not rare, not even for the Christian. In fact, maybe more so if you're a Christian. One day you're doing your job, paying your bills, coaching a team, raising your children, bam, a dragon appears, seemingly out of nowhere. And isn't that how it usually works? So it really shouldn't surprise us that is part of our journey in this world. But just because it's part of our journey doesn't mean we have to accept it passively. That's certainly not what David does, which leads us to our second point. So we just saw what he sees. Second, let's look at his response, what he believes. Now David believes three things, which we'll see in verses three to six. First, He believes in who God is. Verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. See, God, David is saying, God doesn't just provide me with a shield. God is my shield. Now, commentators, uh, some commentators will um, describe the shields that existed around the time that David was writing, was writing this, this prayer, this psalm. Uh, shields back then were large, they were tall, and they were wide. They're not the kind of shields that we often see in movies today where you're able to hold it with one hand and they kind of cover your midsection. This would be wide, tall, big, thick shields. And that's what David has in mind when he's describing God in this manner. He's saying God is the protector. There is not a single area of my life that God doesn't protect me in or from. Then he says, God is also the lifter of my head. You can sort of imagine David walking miles away from his home, rehearsing everything that his son has just done, all the people that have just cursed him, all his friends that have just betrayed him. And he's walking barefoot, alone. You can see him walking into a cave, finding a corner, resting his head on his hands and on his knees. And the image that he has here is of God 
walking in through the door of the cave, seeing David where he is, getting down on one knee and lifting his head, saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. David says, God is my shield and he's the lifter of my head. Second, David also believes what God has said. Verse four, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now this will be a reoccurring theme throughout the Psalms. You'll hear it come up over and over again, the holy hill or the holy mountain. The holy hill or mountain is a metaphor that at least in the Psalms, you'll see it in other parts of the Bible, but in the Psalms refers to God's uh, home, his presence, his temple. It's where he lives. And whenever God is speaking from his holy mountain, it means a couple of things. Number one, it means he's listening. He's never too busy. He's never too far. He's always available. Second, it means he responds, which can only happen when you're in a relationship with someone. You know, a lot of you already picked up your phone this morning or you'll do it after service today and you call your mom or your grandma. Why? Because there's a relationship there. There's an intentionality. There's friendship. There's intimacy. But number three, God answering from his holy mountain means that he intends to save David. He's going to answer his prayer. David also believes in what God has done. Verses five and six, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David remembers the times where God has come through for him which gives them this very clear confidence and security in the present. There's this beautiful image going on here of David laying down in the evening, going to sleep at night, and then waking up in the morning in this restful rhythm of grace. David sleeps like a baby at night because he knows who God is, what God has said, and what God has done. Now it'd be real easy to end the sermon there and tell you, see, that's all you gotta do. You just gotta remember what God has done, what he said, and who he is. Now go. But we know it's not that easy, is it? See, there's a very real temptation we all experience when we see dragons. And it has to do with the mocking that David experienced here from his enemies. There is no salvation for him in God. The greatest temptation when you go through really difficult times will be to believe the lie, there is no salvation for me. God will not come through. God is punishing me. I deserve this. And as a result of believing that lie, we begin to turn away from God. How many of us, when we encounter dragons of any kind, and there's a lot of them these days, aren't there? Our first instinct is to want to take matters into our own hands. Whether it means we believe that we deserve this, and so what's the point? I'll seek relief in other things. I'll self-medicate. 
I'll read the latest book or listen to an expert on a subject that can help me. I'll turn to food or drink or pills. Or if it has to do with someone that has caused us harm, we'll think about ways to take revenge. Either way, we're tempted to turn away from God. We forget who God is, we ignore what God has said, and we disregard what God has done. Which leads us to our third and final point, what David prays for, what he prays for. Verse seven and eight. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. In his well-known book uh, titled Night, which many consider somewhat of a memoir, Elie Wiesel talks about losing his faith after experiencing the horrors of the Holocaust. He was a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz, which of course was the most terrible and horrendous of all German prison camps. He traces the beginnings of his life growing up in a very religious household. There would be prayers and singing and reading scripture until he and his family, but he talks about his dad, who were taken away to the camp where he saw, heard, and experienced unimaginable atrocities, tragedies, leading him to lose his faith. Until, through a very long and difficult, arduous process, he's able to regain it. Uh, Night, the title of, of the book, is the first in a trilogy of books, the others being dawn and then day. And it's in these other ones where we read what made all the difference for him. This is how he puts, or how he talks about the transformation that he experienced. He says, in night, it is the I who speaks. In the other two, it is the I who listens and questions. See, in the beginning, as he was rightfully protesting and complaining and wrestling with all of these questions about evil and suffering, the dragons of this world, he wasn't bringing these complaints to God. He was just airing out his grievances to the world. But eventually, he moves from talking about God to talking to God. And that, my friends, makes all the difference in the world. In fact, in the memorable line, he writes, my anger rises up within faith and not outside of it. My anger rises within faith and not outside of it. As I mentioned at the beginning, Psalm 3 is the first real prayer in the book of Psalms. The past two weeks, we've looked at Psalm 1 and 2. But both of them are talking about God. What we find David doing in Psalm 3 is not talking about God, but talking to God in response to his fear and anguish. And how does he pray? What is his prayer? He doesn't hold anything back. 
He's not afraid to bring all of his complaints and grievances before God. In fact, this strong language, right? Verse seven might startle you. It might even offend some of you when you read it at first. But might I suggest that the problem is actually with our modern sensitivities and not with the Bible. Because if we've actually faced evil in the face or seen it committed against someone, we will want God to take matters into his own hands. Because let's be clear about what David is actually praying for here. He's not saying, I'm going to take revenge. I'm going to break the teeth. I'm going to strike my enemies in the cheek. Instead, he's laying it all at God's feet. He's saying, God, you deal with it. You be the judge. You avenge. You are much wiser. You are much better. You are much more just than I am. So I need you to do something. Now, this isn't some, what, you know, hopefully God does something. There's not a doubt on David's mind that, they, that God will handle the dragons of this world. Six times in this prayer, David says, you will, you will, you will, you will. You will do this. How could David be so sure that God will deal with it? Because nothing is outside of God's control. He says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. But we have dragons in our own lives too, don't we? How can we be so sure that God will deliver us? Well, many years later, after this episode, another king would appear. And he was also betrayed by those closest to him. The Gospel of John says that this king came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected him as king. And in his moment of greatest weakness and shame, he also walked up a hill barefoot, where his enemies stripped him of all of his clothes. They also cast curses on him, And they finally nailed him on a cross. And on that cross, as he cried out for God to save him, to deliver him, no voice was heard from the holy mountain promising deliverance. But unlike David, King Jesus was not forced to flee the city. Jesus did it on his own willingly for his own people because it was only by dying that Jesus was able to rescue us and deliver us from our greatest dragons, sin and death. While God saved David from physical death, God saved Jesus and his people through physical death. On that cross, Jesus was his people's shield. He took all the furies of the dragons, all of the sins of the world were placed on him until until he took the ultimate blow and gave up his final breath. 
But because Jesus was willing to do that, he proved once and for all that salvation truly belongs to the Lord. The dragons of this world no longer hold power over the kingdom of man. In fact, Colossians chapter two reminds us that even Satan and his minions have been exposed as weak and as false. They no longer hold the power or the keys to death. Jesus rose on the third day victorious so that those who come to him by faith, trusting in what he has done, are given his power and his protection. King Jesus delivers us from our greatest dragons. How will he also not deliver us and save us from our earthly daily struggles? Let's pray. Father, you know how to deliver your people. We can trust in you. In the face of so many dragons that surround us, our families, our work, our school, our neighborhoods, You are our shield. And we know this because of what our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did for us on the cross. He took all of our shame and all of our fear, all of our sins upon him. He died the perfect death for us so that we can know you as you truly are and the salvation that you offer. Protect us, we pray, from the dragons of this world and for those that assail us and threaten to um, attack our faith. Keep us grounded in your truth and in your love. Cover us by your grace through Christ our Lord. Amen.